I want to hear more about everything you're doing. I want to hear about this weird Boston College obsession you have. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you weren't even born for Flutie to Phelan, were you? For the Flutie Pass. No, I was not born for that. As a BC alumnus, how much Flutie worship is there? You know, it's funny. There's a relatively good amount of Flutie worship, though. I think a lot of us who were at BC, especially in the years I was there, you know, there's a little bit of like Flutie tiredness. It's like, we love that we had that moment, but I think we're all kind of looking for a new moment at this point. You know, it's like, we want someone to hang our hats on other than the one moment. Yeah, we have a little bit of flutie fatigue. At least I surely did. It was 30 years ago. I mean, yeah, yeah. exactly. He still hangs around campus. He still, you know, plays basketball with kids in the gym. Uh, Is he really? Yeah, yeah, no joke. So he has definitely milked it for all it's worth. (laughs) And I guess it's kind of hard to watch him, you know, sell boner pills now, isn't it? Or whatever it is. So I'm actually back on the East Coast now. My wife and I were in Boston, then we went to California, and now we're in uh, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, then you got to update your LinkedIn page, young man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's not 7 a.m. where you are. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. And so how'd you end up in the Triangle? I guess you just were attracted to the uh, opportunities there. It's it's a hot area. Yeah, you know what? Great startup landscape and being back on the East Coast were really kind of the two big things we're looking for. We have family between Florida and New York, and so we wanted to be kind of right in the middle of everybody and be able to easily get to everyone. Right, um, and a lot of so, ACC schools, so in BC. Yeah, down, there we go, BC, exactly. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the strategy. Um, <laughs> did you consider going back to Boston? Not right now. We, you know, we did get used to a, a more outdoor lifestyle yeah. um, out in California, so hard to, uh, hard to give that up. Well, Chestnut Hill is still a really beautiful place to go oh, to school. Oh, it's incredible. And uh, speaking as a kid who went to school in Charlottesville, you know, game recognized game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been reading all about King's Crowd, and I'm uh, fascinated by how startup investing is kind of easing its way into the analytical age. Totally. I mean, how how far into the CNBC era do you want to bring startup investors in the first place to talk about whisper numbers and missing earnings estimates and all that crap that just drives everybody crazy? Yeah, no, that's fair. I would love for it to be in the mainstream like CNBC, well, to recognize the differences, right, between a startup and a public company and recognizing it's not about quarterly you know, earnings and estimates, but it's about looking at how their technology is developing, how they're developing their market, you know, what their penetration looks like, all of that kind of stuff, and recognizing there's other factors than just the traditional quarterly earnings outlook. But yeah, I would love to see it be consumerized in that type of way. I think that's really important. But yeah, you raised a bit of dough, and uh, I guess the technical term is apeshit. <laughs> it's like you have this Ouroboros, you know, you're like facilitating equity crowdfunding. The more you do, the bigger the market is for everybody. Yeah, exactly. It seems like the only way to do it. If our whole thing is to democratize access to startups, how can we not provide access to our very own company? <laughs> well, you know, I, I appreciate the no nonsense approach. And again, you're about harvesting data from financial reports per se. They're more, they're, it's a more informal declaration that you see on WeFunder and so forth. A lot of that, those data points, part of, you know, many of them are filed somewhere and regulated, and many of them are just usual salesman puffery. So, what kind of work goes into harvesting that data, and how do you winnow the, the wheat from the chaff? Yeah. So a lot of work is a simple answer. 
We pull data. Well, from... that's all the time we have. So, thanks, Chris. <laughs> I appreciate your time. <laughs> no, we pull data from many, many different sources. We've automated a lot of data collection. So, we're pulling from the form filings, we're pulling from the offering pages. We have APIs with most of the major platforms. So, on a daily basis, we can update how much money is being raised by each and every company, how many new investors are partaking. So, we gather a lot of information that way. But to your point, there's a lot of puffery out there. And, you know, through no fault of the founders, you have to tell your very best story. And thus, that's what they're going to do, which means that you're typically going to find out that you know every company is building in a trillion dollar market and every founder is a serial entrepreneur of you know two decades. And it turns out they're a serial entrepreneur because they had a lemonade stand. And you know, actually their addressable market within the trillion dollar market is you know one to two billion dollars or whatever it may be. And so we actually go off and do a lot of our own investment research. We have a full-time team of eight or nine full-time investment analysts at this point. And so they're going out and doing things like market sizing, addressable market sizing, market growth rates. They're going out and digging into the founders and figuring out where did they work before? Do they have industry experience? Have they worked with the other founders before? If they've had an exit, was it a meaningful exit? And then anywhere where we can't perfectly quantify something, we'll actually put it into a bucket. So for instance, something like margin levels or growth rate, right? We might not be able to say exactly what their margin levels are going to be, especially if they're pre-revenue, but can we say they're low, medium, or high? We might not be able to say exactly what their growth rate is, especially if they're pre-revenue or they're a biotech company, but could we say they're a lifestyle business where it's a brewery trying to open up one other location? Is it a growth business where you know they're creating widgets and they want to grow by X percent per year? Or is this a high growth business like a software company that wants to you know expand into becoming a billion dollar revenue company plus? We try and quantify and measure everything about these businesses. And ultimately what that leads to is having 500 data points on every organization that we utilize to compare and contrast all of the investable opportunities against one another's on real fundamentals. And figure out what the exit strategy was for that lemonade stand. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> if it's a high growth lemonade stand, which you never know. Hey, zero to five dollars, you know, it's high growth. Yes. If you can get good margins on your lemonade, man, you are a target. Make no mistake. Margins are margins. Uh, and speaking of telling a good story, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started, we have a uh, brief uh, disclaimer I'd like to read. These are the greatest hits. If you're a longtime listener, you know these by heart by now, but KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor, and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. For the full disclaimer, you can head over to our podcast website, which is successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. And we are talking about King's Crowd, a data-driven approach to startup investing that empowers individual investors by providing institutional-grade research tools for assessing the thousands of investment opportunities in the private market. I'm here with founder and CEO, Chris Lestrino. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? Hey, thanks so much. Great to be here. 
I can tell you're just <laughs> the energy you're putting off the excitement. It's especially exciting to talk about someone who's specifically filling a large hole in the industry that is growing faster than I think most people even anticipated, given how this new startup market is developing interest. It's interesting to watch the legislators and the government try to keep up and regulate this thing because we've seen what happens when a bunch of people get together and do unregulated stuff in 2008. <laughs> Chris, of course, was toddling around his house somewhere <laughs> when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> he is a wonderkind, right? You're out of school, what, eight years ago? Uh, yeah, 2014. Yeah, so uh, not, you're not 30 yet. I just turned 30 on Friday. Hey, happy birthday. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the incentive for King's Crowd as it tends back to your to growing up in New York and before you headed off to Chestnut Hill for college. I sense a lot of there's a lot of passion here and that doesn't come from nowhere. Where did the glimmers of your passion for this kind of work come from? Tell me, what was your childhood like? What made you want to discover that the benefits of being in the business world? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I grew up with a family of engineers and nurses and doctors, all that kind of stuff. And everyone that I kind of knew in my family, extended family, certainly were more risk averse folks, just brilliant people. But there was a risk averseness there that I didn't necessarily have. Can't explain why, but, you know, just my personality wasn't there. And I remember growing up, you know, with a sense of there was a distrust amongst folks in my family of, you know, even the places they work that, you know, the people at the top weren't doing the right things or weren't, you know, setting them up for success. And I always felt like there was some sort of disconnect of, of two things. One, I thought they were probably half right. You know, there's things that people always do that whatever. And then two, something wasn't being communicated down to them in a way that made sense. And I always felt like if, if I could be someone leading a company that I would want to find a way to take all these folks who were working for you and, and working with you on a team to really understand that you have their best intentions in mind, that you're doing everything in your power to create a great business, and that that ultimately can lead to good things for the people who are helping to build that business. So I, I know it's kind of an odd thing, but but I think ultimately when I was growing up, I saw how people thought about the business world. I had my views on what the business world should be. And when I got out of school, it felt like an opportunity of how do I converge those two worlds and start to lead the type of business where I would be proud to hire my dad or my mom and they would feel good about being a part of that organization. And so that was that's a big part. Just as much as I care about the cause that I'm working on, I care very deeply about running a good business where we care about people in the right way and do everything that we can to take care of the people who are helping to make that business successful. Do you consider yourself a quant or a child of quants? Uh, <laughs> I consider myself a capable quant, uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with an empathetic human side. <laughs> All right. So we are already discussing the value of AI with a heart. Okay. <laughs> AI, but there we go. Absolutely. You are a, a sentient mathematician. So well done. Because <laughs> you've implied now that basic quants <laughs> work in a completely unemotional sense, which is true to a point. I mean, you look at numbers and if they add up, you go. And if they don't, you don't. And I, I appreciate that. I'm a recovering math teacher myself, and um, I loved teaching calculus, especially the inexactitude of it and the proactivity of it, because it's a science that man made up, you know, to measure the earth and figure out incremental change. And when you look at the mathematics of this, again, it's not uncommon to see PhDs in physics become quants and run hedge funds and make all the money there is in the galaxy. So 
when the time came to analyze this new uh, startup private market, there was a sensibility, like if you appreciate, if you watch CNBC and you appreciate all of the numbers that they're crunching in order to reduce the risk as much as possible, or at least quantify the risk as much as possible, how hard has it been to try and apply something as tried and true as public companies on the stock exchange to companies that don't have nearly that level of regulation yet? Well, it's extremely challenging if you don't have access to data at scale which is what we've been building for four and a half years at King's Crowd. So in the traditional private markets, you're actually incentivized to share no information, right? Because when you share information, you simply see that the business, frankly, isn't doing well. And so you hide your information, everyone hides their information, and everyone says, oh, because of the information asymmetry, we have you know, our powerful position in the market. And that's what private equity and venture funds have thrived on for years and years and years. And by selling the narrative that you can never solve you know, private market investing with data, you essentially created this story that it's impossible. But that's not true. It's just that the structures that existed did not enable you to be able to look at data at scale, because that's the key component, right? At scale. If you're looking, even every venture firm will kind of hold on to the data that they have. It's all unstructured. It's not you know, uh, standardized in any sort of way, and they refuse to share it with one another. So even if they see 500 companies in a year, it could take decades for them to have enough aggregate companies, if they're even watching those companies over time, to be able to build a model that actually makes sense and can start to identify factors that lead to success of private companies. But what if you had open access deal flow that had real financials attached to it, where you could see how much you know equity ownership the founders have, where everything can be structured. And then you could build a structured data set on top of that and watch how thousands and thousands and thousands of companies perform over time. Well, suddenly you can build an actual quant model to look at performance of private companies from their earliest days in a quant-driven way. And that's what we're doing at King's Crowd. We're working within a structure where we have open access deal flow. We have large amounts of information being shared in a way that it's never been done before. And then we're structuring all of our own data in addition to that so that we have the best and most comprehensive data set ever created on private companies to date. And to what extent can this data set be analyzed. I mean, I worked with equity analysts for a couple of years at Citigroup and got a good sense of what their call notes were like and how they formulated their the data behind their buy recommendations or whatever recommendations they put on there. There was a little great inflation, as we know, because, you know, hold meant get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I also was fascinated by the technical analysts who would look at solely, you know, they look at histograms and they'd look at you know, touching historical lows and why there was an emotional, the madness of crowds behind why a certain stock would never drop below a certain price. Now, to what extent do you think the data you're providing can lend itself to the analysis that most people are accustomed to providing to clients? It's extremely powerful. Now, there's an education component that goes along here, right? Because like a public company, if you're raising via one of these online marketplaces like Republic or WeFunder, you're sharing all of your you know, income balance sheet, all of that stuff is being shared. So mm. you have access to the type of data you have on a public company. The major difference is that you might be looking at a bunch of zeros or heavy losses. Yes, exactly. And, and people are saying, revenue. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so for a lot of investors, they go, what does that mean? This looks extremely risky. And the answer is, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. It is extremely risky. You need to diversify. You need to understand what a good balance sheet looks like for an early, early stage company versus one that isn't. And one of the powerful tools that we build is a, this ability to compare and contrast all of these companies against one another. So if you have 500 seed stage companies raising at the same time, you could see what those balance sheets on average look like, right? And you could say, okay, well, listen, if they have a few hundred thousand on the balance sheet and their burn rate is X, whatever, that's kind of my standard going rate. I could get comfortable in behind that. They still might fail, but at least I know what my baseline is. And I'm not looking for hundreds of millions of dollars on the balance sheet and tens of millions in revenue. But you might also look and go, whoa, this company has nothing on the balance sheet. They have a massive burn rate. They must be desperate and dying on the vine. And now you could actually tease that out and understand, okay, what's baseline? What's bad? What's really good? And so you need to help reorient people to understand the fundamentals are different. But if you have enough companies to look at an aggregate, you could start to get a sense of what's baseline, what's bad, what's really good. And that's the real challenge, right? Because as you say, many of these companies are pre-revenue. It's all projections. And in fact, that's why I love this podcast in a way, because we're at a time when the projections are important, but getting to know the person behind those projections and the person who's tasked to make those a reality is as big a part of your investment decision as anything. So when you have minimal data like that, what kind of trends can you extrapolate based upon the data you have? Well, there's some really cool things that you can look at. So for instance, you do get the past two years financials for a business. Yeah. Um, 180 days after they close around, they have to file that next year's financials. And then they do have an ongoing reporting requirement technically. Now you can decide to terminate that. But for a lot of companies, we're starting to be able to see what those trend lines look like over time. And a lot of these companies are going out and raising additional rounds of funding and filing new years of financials. So you could start to get a sense of what those growth rates should look like, what those revenues should look like. And of course, things are nonlinear. So you might have an explosive growth year, and then you might be flat for a year or two, and then another explosive growth year. So what you're looking for is really the overall picture, right? You might have a year where you do exceptionally well on revenue growth and revenue growth rate and all of that type of stuff, but you might struggle on you know, the market you're in, maybe new competitors enter and now it's become a more competitive environment. Maybe the pricing for the market has come down. So it's more challenging to go and raise capital at whatever valuation you're at. So the factors are always changing where you're performing well and where you aren't performing well. And so what we try and provide investors with is a full picture of the business. What do the founders look like? What does the market look like? What are the terms of the deal look like? What is the performance of the business look like? And what does their uniqueness and differentiation look like? So that you could get a sense of, hey, they're struggling here, but they're doing really well here. And you as an investor then can decide what is it that matters most fundamentally to me before I make an investment decision. So let's dial this back a bit, because this has basically been your life for half your postgraduate existence, right? If I have the timeline correct, you got out of school in 14 and started uh, King's Crowd in 18. And so when you look at the aha moment, there's two crucial components here. One, seeing the problem and knowing you could fix it. So what was the moment where you thought this needs to exist? But more importantly, what was the moment that said, I know how to fix it? Yeah. So actually, it's really more than half of my career to date over those eight years. It's about seven of those eight years was doing this type of stuff. So when I graduated, I worked at a management consulting firm where I spent the majority of my time doing private equity due diligence work. And essentially, we would be hired by a private equity firm to diligence a deal or a company they were looking at prior to them actually acquiring that business. And so I spent, you know, 
thousands of hours, just diligencing companies. I think I did about 34 deals while I was there. I helped with the like a high level paralegal. That's the essentially. <laughs> yep. Yep. But digging in on everything from the financial model to the management team, to customer surveys, so on and so forth, and really understanding the holistics of that business. And it, you know, a couple of things happened for me. First off, I went, this is not rocket science. They've been very good at positioning it as rocket science so that- How well do you know rocket science? You say you come from engineers. Is there any actual rocket science in your DNA? Uh, not in my family, though. Actually, one of our employees, he's amazing, is a, ro- a former rocket scientist. There you go. <laughs> See? <laughs> See, it's so the I, rocket I, scientists. If we're like, let's make some money here for a change. Yeah, I hang around the right people. So but, you knowing rocket science as you do, you know that this is not. Please, this yes. is certainly not rocket science. What I would say is, I knew I couldn't be a rocket scientist, and I was able to do this job very well. And like so, they say, CEOs need to surround themselves with people who fill in the gaps in their of their knowledge and much more really, capable. Than Chris I. has well done. Yeah. <laughs> but the the really big thing for me was I didn't even know what private equity was until I left school and was working in it. And um, wait a second, if I look at an exceptional deal. I don't actually have a way of investing in this business. And that like, that really bothered me. And that was a big thing that set me off. I actually Googled at work, you know, it's like that aha uh, founder moment. Why can't I invest in the private markets? And one of the first things that popped up was that the Jobs Act was being created to solve for this issue that has existed forever. They basically said, hey, we're going to protect the non-millionaire, 97% of America, and not allow you to invest in all of the high growth assets of the private markets, which is where most of the growth happens and where all the rich people invest. And I said, well, that seems dumb. The other thing is we had terrible data that we had to work with on most of these due diligence efforts. And I thought, what if there was more access to data? What if this was a more transparent data set so that you can actually make good investments in private markets? And I realized that the Jobs Act was solving for both of these issues. It was creating access and it was creating transparency in the private markets. That was both of the things I cared about. So I actually even ran a fintech blog. I was probably the first person in the US that had a publication focused solely on talking about online private markets, alternative lenders, alternative investing companies, all this stuff that was taking private market assets, fractionalizing, securitizing, and bringing them online for everyone to be able to invest in. And I got to know every founder and CEO that was out there. And then in 2018, one of the founders of Napster saw that blog from one of the companies he was advising that I had interviewed and said, hey, would you want to do something more with this? Do you want to take this to the next level? Ultimately acquired my blog, seated us, and we kind of took off from there. Well, that's fascinating. I, I've, one of the big aspects of everything that I've done in the online presence, putting stuff out there. You never know where it's going to lead. You just know for sure that if you put nothing out there, nothing will happen. And so what a stroke of luck that you would connect with this guy. Clearly you established that you had the knowledge to diagnose the problem. So what kind of work went into at least starting to solve it? (laughs) So I leave my job and um, I have no money. I have nothing. It's me. It's an idea. And it's, well, what should I do now? You know, I could. Were you married? Yes or no? I was married. Yep. I was. You had a supportive partner. Continue. Yeah. Yep. I had a supportive partner for sure. She's been incredible and said, okay, well, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? And um, that was an interesting time. So, you know, basically I realized, well, I can't, I can't do this on my own. There's no way that I can. So if I'm going to take any steps, I need to at least raise some funding and show that there's something here. And so I went and raised $120,000 on one of the platforms called Net Capital. And this is still very, very early days of regulation crowdfunding, regulation A+. So the market was tiny and I was trying to live on top of a tiny market. So trying to sell investors on this grand vision of the private markets are going to live online in the next decade and all this stuff, 
you know, they're like, okay, Chris, good luck with that. I'll see you later. And so I basically spent a couple months putting together my pitch deck, getting all of my documents in order, you know, getting everything filed and listed our company on net capital and then hit the ground running and worked really hard to raise that first $120,000. I probably took almost 200 conversations in those first like four months and ended up, you know, getting 20 or 30 relatively large investors, you know, between a thousand and 10,000, which for me was, was large and kind of got those first dollars in the door. And then the question was, well, what do I do with that? And the big thing was like, I caught the car. Now what? (laughs) I I remember being like the first time that I was going to pay someone to do something, feeling like a little weird, like, oh my God, like I'm now actually paying people for services to create this business. And and that being a little bit scary because it's like, once you start, you know, taking investor dollars, now you have an expectation to do something with that. And the big thing that I looked to do was, can we tease out that there's some sort of real demand for our services? And can we show that we're capable of meeting that demand? And so we started with what I was capable of doing. I was not a data scientist. I was not a tech person and I didn't have the money to really hire a full-time tech person. So I started by just writing analyst reports, which is what my full-time day job was. Wrote analyst reports, hired a bunch of interns from Boston College who helped me write the analyst reports and do a lot of the investment research and got our first paying customers. Probably got you know one or 200 paying customers, which was enough to be able to then be able to go back out and raise some larger capital to say, hey, this isn't just an idea, but we really have something and people seem to be willing to actually pay for this service. And how did you find those customers? What was your marketing like? My marketing was NA. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was word of mouth. One of it the was, several zeros on your balance sheet. Yes. Yes. It was one of the many zero. I mean, a big thing was honestly telling the founders, hey, we just rated you positively. Would you share that with your audience? And it was very much kind of an organic word of mouth driven exercise at the time. Well, yeah, for sure. Any opportunity to be seen in a great light is something that most intelligent people would gravitate toward. And then, so now, then this was back in 2018 when the when the official flag went up and then you, uh, you, you brought in some, some investment and some customers and you had a revenue stream. So when you started making some money, where was the most urgent growth area that you, would, that you attended to first? Well, I said from day one that we were going to be a data company. And I remembered some of the first hires that I made. They're like, but you don't have data. I'm like, but we're going to be a data company. Don't we're worry about data it. Data company. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, there was another business out there called Crowdits.com. And the founder of that, I, I ended up meeting the two founders of the organization and had some really good conversations. And they were the first company that was tracking this industry from a data perspective. So they were tracking every raise, how much money they were raising, that type of stuff. And one of the founders was a former CTO of the Dow Jones Business Intelligence Group. And he had co-founded as a technologist about you know four or five major companies over the past few decades. So you know we started chatting and ultimately we ended up acquiring his business to become the data infrastructure of King's Crowd. The first dollars really went to supporting the build out of the actual King's Crowd data platform. And we spent about six months integrating what we had built at King's Crowd on kind of the analyst side with then the actual data side of the business and getting that kind of first true, kind of call it King's Crowd 1.0. I'd almost say the first website was, you know, 0.0. It was really just a blog, but now we had real data to back up what we were talking about. And we were able to launch that, I believe in July of 2019, was when we kind of launched our first site with real data technology built into it. And so a lot of our investment really went into product and then having investment analysts be able to support the actual product, right? The analyst reports, the data collection, that type of stuff. And how has the data acquisition evolved in those couple of years? I'm getting the sense it was 
all person driven initially. And now you've added some technology to it. The people I talk to on this podcast, it's kind of it's mind boggling how much AI is built into so many of these business models in terms of sifting through data and figuring out what's what's important and what's not. But uh, as you scale this, how has the data acquisition become more technological and supervised by humans as the market balloons, you're going to have a much bigger data set to approach. So how's that going to affect your bottom line? When we started this business, <laughs> there was about three to five new companies a week that were raising in these markets, <laughs> right? So yes. I could track the whole thing you know, with, with my own efforts. It was not very hard to do. Now on any given week, there's between 50 and 70 new companies raising capital. It's unbelievable that are starting raises. At any given time, there could be between 700 and almost a thousand individual companies raising capital out there across over 40 marketplaces and lots of independent raises as well. So the volume of data that we now have to collect has like, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold. I don't even know. It's exponentially increased over the past few years. And so, yeah, we have built out our technology to be, you know, about 70% automated in terms of data collection, which is really, really good. We've also built out our investment research team. We have about nine full-time investment analysts on our team. And it's, it is interesting because people always say, well, you know, how do you scale if the market keeps growing? You know, how scalable is that? And the thing that I have to say is if all you want is data and you just want the automated data, you haven't really provided a truly valuable product. People need context in this market. People need real investment research. They need to understand the difference between good fundamentals and bad fundamentals. And unfortunately, a lot of the services out there, especially in Silicon Valley, I think have tried to kind of cheat a little bit to scale, right? Oh, everything's automated. And what you end up with is a, a bunch of worthless data that doesn't mean anything to anyone. And we've seen a few businesses go out of business trying to do that in our very own market. I point to S&P and Morningstar. S&P has 30,000 employees. You wouldn't say that's scalable, but they're also worth over $100 billion. Why? Because investment research is gold. It is worth a ton of money. When you pair great data with great investment analysts and research, you have a business that is worth an exorbitant amount of money. And I think we had that type of opportunity in the private markets, which by the way, are larger than the traditional public markets. And if our thesis plays out over the next decade and most private market transactions take place via some sort of exchange or marketplace, well, then we're going to be in a very nice position. I'm always eager to talk to data guys who will look to the numbers first and less to the hype and the puffery and the, the need to grow. Because I, I obviously you do want to scale and you do want to grow, but there's a lot of evidence out there lately about how people who set their bar to just grow and grow and grow and keep their margins wider and wider and wider, and they want to have infinite growth in a finite market. And I'm thinking about something like Netflix. You know, you can't just assume you're going to keep acquiring subscribers. There's only a finite number of people who can subscribe to your work. And it's not good enough just to have a big margin and maintain that year after year. It's got to get bigger, larger, more. And how do we debunk that idea? When you think about late stage capitalism and how rapacious it is, to what extent is your job to kind of call for patience in terms of recognizing that you can still get a profitable return without resorting to some deep greed that you must have more all the time? Yeah. This, let's establish this in terms of what the math will allow and not so much what the hype will promise. You know, I, I, I always talk about this. We've kind of been sold this story of scalability that doesn't exist, right? If Airbnb and Uber and all these companies were so scalable, 
they wouldn't need to raise so much money. If they were so scalable, they would be profitable. They wouldn't be hemorrhaging money. A lot of these businesses have been hemorrhaging money for years and years and years and years. And it's because they're not in fact scalable, especially if you're just trying to saturate and monopolize a market before anyone realizes that it's an industry, right? Uber and Lyft basically just incentivize the market with really low rates. And then as soon as they kind of own the market, they just jack the rates up and hope that that'll work. And it's like no one was watching for a monopoly because they didn't even know the industry existed. But now you end up with these two you know, major companies and you're, you know, that's why you end up with really bad pricing. So I think there's a lot of issues with our concept of scalability that frankly aren't true. And I think one of the things that investors start to need to, to th- or founders need to think about for their business is, yeah, how do you take that low and slow approach to build the business in a fundamental way where over five or 10 years, one, you build a very large business. And as the market incrementally grows, you're a part of that incremental growth. And how do you take your core assets and re-monetize them in various ways to continue to be able to generate new lines of revenue for your business, which I think someone like Amazon has done very well. While they're very scary, they're good at what they do. Yeah. Well, um, when you control half the internet, yeah, that's pretty much... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could do a lot of interesting things, but... I think ultimately for us, that low and slow approach is the right one and taking what the market gives you and not trying to force the market forward in a time when maybe it's not ready for that. And we are especially affected by that because we are not a business like an Uber or a Lyft where people already know what a taxi is. And now you're just selling them on, hey, this is an easier way to get a taxi essentially, right? We are saying, hey, there's this new asset class you can invest in. And then people right away put their guard up. What do you mean there's this new thing I can invest in? Because it's their money. It's their hard-earned money. So now you got to educate them on the new asset class. And then once you educate them, you say, hey, and you should use our tool. And then if you use our tool, here are the places you could go and actually invest. I mean, you're orienting millions and millions of people to a wholly new thing and taking them from zero, becoming educated startup investors, becoming capable of actually going and making investments. This is really hard. And you could start to spend exorbitant amounts of money ahead of the market and put yourself in a really bad position. We need to be thoughtful and work with what the market's giving us and grow as people become more aware of this industry. So yeah, I'm all for that. And I think ultimately what we'll need to do is you know, find ways to provide more dividends to investors, provide ways to get cash back to investors without necessarily it having to be driven on top line growth, which is not always the best thing for the business. And to extrapolate on that a bit in terms of, as you say, the counsel, when, when you counsel investors, I think there's a specific challenge now with the democratization of investing, as there was 20 years ago when people could start day trading on their own and didn't have to go through brokers and had to learn what it was like to actually trade in the stock market. And now, because investing in in private companies has become democratized in that way, there is a definite class system in terms of there are people, the accredited investors, and people who, who are in this business because they've been in it for a long time. They know a lot about it. They have a lot of capital to deploy when they want to. But you also have, for lack of a better word, these small-time retail investors who are kind of just taking a flyer and dropping off 500 bucks and maybe having outsized demands of what that 500 bucks is going to do. So now how does that counsel that you just mentioned, how can you apply that to a retail investor who maybe has oversized dreams and oversized expectations of where that initial investment could go? Well, I think we saw what happens when people have that, which is you just look at the crypto markets, right? All right. If you're paying the, if, if you have your bingo card out, we've mentioned the C word. <laughs> well, j- just look at it, right? It had that risk reward curve where the market was liquid. And because it was liquid, people are willing to throw in and are like, I can make a million dollars overnight and then I could sell out and I could be rich. 
And obviously that hasn't worked for a lot of people, right? For most people, they got in way too late when things have already been pumped up and now they're suffering the consequences and have probably lost a lot of money. And there's been no regulation of how much you can invest in that market. So I think you saw the hopes and dreams, the outsized you know, expectation of returns, and now it's all come crashing down and people are suffering because of it. Whereas in our world, there isn't that liquidity element and because of that, what's happened is there's a lot more risk aversion to putting their money in because what they're saying is I'm going to put my money in and you're telling me I'm locked up for seven to 10 years. Well, that doesn't really work for me. So there's a lot more hesitancy. So while the reward could be really tremendous, it takes long-term thinking, which is not necessarily as Americans, our greatest strength. We're not necessarily great long-term thinkers. So, you know, there's that desire for now, 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 well, this is an industry that's preaching later, later, later. Um, which I think has actually been very good for our market because you see people be a little more he hesitant and careful in the investments they're making. So the average investment in this market is $800, but there's plenty of people are putting in only $50 to $100 in each and every deal. And they're typically diversifying. They're actually putting it into many different investments. And so even though half of that portfolio is going to end up crashing and burning, that'll be $300 or $400 out of your pocket. And a couple of those are going to hit and do very well. So I think that the risk reward and liquidity curve in this world has actually helped keep it much more in balance. And we have not seen that explosion of growth, which you know is driven by irrational behavior. I think we've actually seen a relatively good amount of rational behavior within our market. So if you look at your customer base, what percent would you say, what portion are of the more casual retail type and what particular services would someone with a little less understanding of how investing works would you provide to them as opposed to an accredited professional? Well, accredited means nothing to me. Uh, that just means you have a lot of money and that money could come <laughs> from your parents, that could come from your grandparents, that could come from winning the lotto. It certainly does not mean you're smart. It could even just be, you know, mean that you're in the right place at the right time, made a ton of money and you're certainly not smarter for that. Yeah, it just um, means you've got more doors open to you though. I mean, there are certain investments that are hands off if you don't have that, you know, asterisk next to your name. Yeah, I would almost argue that I have seen some behavior from accredited investors that suggest they're more careless because their loss tolerance is higher. They're trying to figure out how can I really generate more wealth on top of the wealth I already have? And they're willing to take some really sizable bets. Whereas the more casual retail investor asks the harder questions and is more careful because if I lose this hundred dollars, that hurts. I need to find a way to generate more wealth from what I have and I can't afford to take losses. So they're actually more thoughtful in many instances. Where we find our core customer tends to be is actually your 35 to 55-year-old mass affluent. They're making 100 to 250,000. They're not necessarily accredited. They have a good amount of wealth, but they're not rich. You know, they're middle class and they're trying to find a way to take that next step and they're utilizing alternatives as a way to potentially do that. They're asking for a lot. They want to know. They want to be able to search the entire market. They want to be able to diligence all the deals in a quick and efficient way. And then they want to be able to manage that portfolio in an efficient way as well. Because a lot of people have found, wait a second, I don't have a brokerage account in this market. And if I want to manage my investments efficiently, how do I do that if I have them living on 40 different marketplaces? So we've created a portfolio management tool for people to be able to track and, and watch all of their investments in one place. And how uh, fluent in the terminology are you finding most of your customers are? Are they able to take this portfolio management tool and work with it? Or how much instruction is necessary to teach people what you have and how to use what you have? You know, it, the portfolio tool is actually probably the simplest one. You say, hey, have you made an investment? Yes. Do you want to track it? Yes. They put in the, the name of the company, how much and the date, and we take care of the rest. 
Now we have a wide range of people who come to our site. You have the folks who are coming intentionally and saying, I am here because I am looking for something to make my life easier when it comes to startup investing. We have a whole nother set of people who kind of stumble upon us who maybe heard about a startup from a friend that's on Republic or WeFunder. And then they're kind of wondering, is this a good deal? They find us because we provide diligence on that company, but then they have a whole slew of questions and you have to take them from zero to becoming that informed investor. And that requires a lot more education and a lot more educational tools. So we provide inordinate amounts of educational content and tools to help get people up to speed. But there is an education curve that needs to occur there. I always say, you can't just like throw this at the wall. It's not like saying online, hey, go buy this pair of shoes and you're already looking for a pair of shoes. It's, hey, come learn about startup investing. And then if you're interested, you might want to sign up for these tools that'll make it easier. And then if you're really into it, you can actually go and make an investment. You really do need to orient people to this space. Well, I have to say, Chris, it's been great talking to you about King's Crowd and to see how this has coalesced into such a viable entity so soon and such a powerful entity at so soon. When you think about growing pains, what sort of stuff keeps you up at night in terms of how King's Crowd is going to develop now that you have a sizable bit of cash yourself to develop? Uh, what are the headwinds that you're seeing? I'm, I keep thinking about the mania of markets and so forth, uh, or something like the collapse of SPACs. You know, SPACs were like the biggest thing in the world, and now you know, SPACs are looking around to pair with Bill's Plumbing. So what kind of challenges are you preparing for? Well, I, I think just to hit on on something you said there is, you know, you have this mania of markets and and we're kind of, you know, half people say we're entering a recession. I mean, I think technically we already are in one by definition, but what does that actually mean? We're definitely seeing investor sentiment cool off where they're being more careful and reserved in making investments. So that's a headwind that we're certainly going to have to deal with. And our industry was born in a bull market and has not experienced the bear market yet. So the reality is we don't know what that means for our industry just yet. We're going to find out in the next year, maybe two years for it to all really play out, right? To see if companies survive or they die and how many of those companies die that have been invested in. What does that mean for investors? And what does that mean for sentiment around our industry and it going forward? So there, there are question marks there. The, the one major, major positive that I will say that helps me sleep at night is that what we're seeing right now is actually a similar behavior to the beginning of COVID. When COVID started, we saw a down month or two, and then the market actually spiked and it grew like it 3X'd almost overnight. And that was driven by VC behavior cooling off and saying, we're not going to invest in anything new. And all these companies going, wait a second, I still need to raise capital. They went online and started raising capital via these online marketplaces. It became a viable path for them. And investors were sitting at home and all those angels who had said, oh, I still only want to write a check. I need to meet the founder in person. That all went out the window. And so it actually really helped change behavior a lot faster than it most likely would have without COVID. And now that we're entering a recession, I think what we're seeing is that the VCs are cooling off again, saying we're not investing in anything new right now. And so that's caused an influx of new companies to come into our industry once again that are trying to raise capital from these markets. Now, the dollars have not met expectations because investors you know, are also cooling in this market a bit, but they're holding steady. So we're not seeing heavy growth in total dollars raised, but we're seeing steady numbers. And I think what that tells us is that basically companies are, are flocking here and saying, hey, there's money to, you know, money to be made, money to be raised here. Investors are, you know, some of them are cooling off, but enough new people are still entering that's holding the market steady. And I think when we kind of come out of this tougher period over the next six to 12 months, what we might end up with is this nice expectation of new demand and new investor levels that we've never seen before in our industry. And it could become a much more viable and respected path for raising capital. 
And in saying that, essentially becoming more mainstream. So I think this could end up helping us become that multi-billion dollar raising channel that we think it can be in the next year or two. And I think that's important because you mentioned Bitcoin and the reason that's so subject to volatility is that there's really no bedrock. And what you guys are doing is trying to establish that platform so that at least the investments people are making are more based on fundamentals, more based on the kind of data you can rely on to extrapolate and recognize that this is something that is more likely than not to succeed. Obviously, there's all sorts of exogenous things you can't predict and who knows what's going to happen. But I think as this grows, this is the kind of shelf that's going to be building beneath everyone to recognize that there is value in analyzing fundamentals and staying away from the mania that I think if you just walk into equity crowdfunding with dollar signs dancing in your eyeballs, if you can't see the sucker at the table, you're it. (laughs) Um, So I really appreciate the time, Chris. Uh, This has been a great conversation. I expected it to be just because anybody who is making as huge a contribution to equity crowdfunding as a whole and profiting handsomely from it deserves as big a platform as he can find. And I'm really glad you shared some time with us here. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you here, Doug. If you can find all the information you need about King's Crowd at kingscrowd.com. Thank you for listening to the Successfully Funded Podcast. I have been Doug French. That has been Chris Lestrino, founder and CEO of King's Crowd. So we'll be back next time with another story about someone making a difference in the world. Appreciate your listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.